episode 11 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. This episode, we're going to discuss BOD sampling and lab analysis. One of our guests today is Rick Mealy, retired program chemist, laboratory certification and registration program of the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And he is now the president-elect for the Wisconsin Wastewater Operators Association Board of Directors. Say hello, Rick. Hello, everybody. We also have George Bowman, retired science management supervisor of the University of Wisconsin State's Laboratory of Hygiene. He is currently an obsessed kayak fisherman and who was, until recently, a certified wastewater operator. Hi, everyone. I'd like to be kayaking right now, but unfortunately, our water's frozen in Wisconsin. <laughs> that does put a damper on it. <laughs> oh, real damper. <laughs> Great. We want to remind our listeners that uh, to stay tuned for our Wanda's Water tidbit at the end of our program. It's where we share fun and quirky trivia or information on water. So Rick and George, I'm excited to talk to you guys about the BOD testing. We've gone back and forth for months. and But in my experience, for operators that do not run these certified tests themselves, this is just something that they do that their permit requires. You know, they send their samples off to a third party and voila, two, three weeks later, a report shows up and they know whether they are in compliance or not. But I wanted to talk more about it and really pick your guys' brains so we could understand this better. So how would you two define BOD testing? Well, Rick, if you want to go ahead, that'd be fine. Uh, speaking of quirky, I think BOD is one of those quirky tests. Uh, it's, it's, you want to jump in or director? Should I go ahead? Oh, you can start and I can needle you. Okay, that sounds fine. <laughs> uh, the relationship between Rick, Rick and I is also like the water strider. It's very quirky. And I'm speaking Got it. Rick first. <laughs> okay, the BOD test is a bioassay technique that's really used to assess the relative strength of a waste in terms of how much oxygen would be consumed during the biological stabilization process when that's discharged to a river or a stream. It's, it's a bioassay. It's not a precise test, but um, uh, it really involves taking a known amount of sample, putting it in a standard BOD bottle. It's a reservoir top bottle, 300 mils typically, you add water that's saturated with dissolved oxygen and has essential nutrients like phosphorus, iron, nitrogen, and so forth. And then at the beginning of the test period, you measure the dissolved oxygen concentration. You incubate it for five days at 20 degrees centigrade in the dark. At the end of the five-day test period, you measure the oxygen concentration again. And by knowing the starting and ending concentration and the sample volume, you can calculate the BOD. Five days, George. That seems a little weird. Where did that come from? <laughs> Funny you should mention that. That's the length of time it takes waste to flow from London to the North Sea. It's just, it's pretty random, but that's that's how they came up with the number. In fact, uh, in 2018, I had a chance to go to England and I couldn't wait to stand in front of the Thames River and hold up my hand with five fingers. Five days. I've been winning that my whole life. And and this is George's quirkiness. Ah, <laughs> ah. I, I should have warned our listeners that uh, you two are known as the Rick and George show up in, in Wisconsin. <laughs> I think this is going to be fun. <laughs> He's an easy target. Ah, Okay, so what is the intent of the test then? I mean, if the five days was kind of set according to London's experience, what does it do for us? 
Yeah, and therefore London is, you know, represented the entire world, every little city. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> that makes sense. Perfect sense. The intent is to determine the impact of oxygen availability to flora and fauna in the di discharge stream. So if we're dumping a waste that's going to require oxygen to break it down, how much of an impact does it have on reduction of oxygen downstream? We can't kill the little fishies or bugs or, or flowers or anything. And in the United States, Rick, too, it's um, the Clean Water Act requires that you have a minimum concentration of oxygen, even under low flow conditions. And the amount that facilities are allowed to discharge, BOD discharge, is all depending on the basically the assimilative capacity of that particular uh, stream. Well, and I know for a lot of operators during low flow, that's really hard. You know, it to, is. To you know, sustain because the equipment or the design wasn't made for that, you know, it was made for higher flows or something like that. Absolutely. In fact, we had a drought here. Oh, George, when was it that we were at Watertown years ago and uh, the entire flow of the stream was the discharge? Oh, oh gosh. Uh, that was, uh, oh gosh, it was that four or five years ago? Yeah, it was, it was, Kyle was involved. So it was that long ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was dry up until the discharge. Well, out, out here in the Southwest, that's pretty common as well. If we can't put it down an aquifer, we are the river, basically, wow. in the waters of the U.S. So permitting gets even tighter. Well, it, it, the nice thing about engineers, and by the way, uh, the old saying, there's no such thing as a civil engineer is really not true. Uh, there are a lot of civil engineers. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> sorry, I had to throw that in there. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of friends of engineers. We like to have a good time. But anyway, uh, the good thing is that in many places like the Southwest, California, water reuse has become a, a big thing, outstanding waste treatment and then reuse that water. But to be able to treat the water, you do need to know the BOD. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I've heard people talk about different kinds of BOD, like CBOD. What are what does that mean? Rick? Ah, yeah, I was just going to mention that one of the nuances is that BOD measures both carbonaceous BOD, which is CBOD, and nitrogenous, any nitrogenous demand on oxygen, because nitrogen forms like ammonia will have an impact on oxygen if there are certain bacteria present. Mm -hmm. So the CBOD is a little different. I don't know if you want to get into that right now or we can hang for that to come a little later. Oh, we, we could probably hang for that for a little bit later. But is it useful is the question. It can be. Those facilities that do have a problem with nitrification going on may need to have their permit changed to be carbonaceous BOD. Ah, it's, it's a tough call on that. We've seen people jump to getting CBOD limits, which are going to be much lower than a BOD limit when maybe they shouldn't have. In fact, in some cases, definitely they shouldn't have. Uh huh. So that's a, there's a whole discussion about nitrification that would have to happen. And if you keep, keep in mind, too, that when, when modelers or when regulators are looking at the impact of BOD on, on streams and rivers, they generally have to factor out the carbon of the nitrogenous BOD because in, in a real live environment, in a river, lake, or stream, it behaves differently than in the test. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that, that's good to know. Cause I have heard of, you know, operators talking about going to that. And I'm like, do you know what that means? <laughs> Before you get excited, do you know what that means? Yeah, you better do a lot of parallel testing to absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have nitrification going on. When when we're sampling stuff, you mentioned before the standard method 5210B. How does that play into this? You go, George. You're the standard methods expert. <laughs> no, not necessarily. I was on the standard methods committee for, for a BOD committee for about 18 years. But uh, basically, the BOD test, it's an empirical test. You have to follow the method in detail. And if we're able to compare results from one facility to another, you need to follow it really exactly. And standard methods is basically the Bible of, of BOD testing. It lays out exactly how the testing has to be done. The the federal EPA and, and states require that that method be used. So it's a standardized method, apples to apples kind of comparison. Absolutely. I have to ask though, I, I'm seeing a shift now from BODs to just straight up CODs. And industrial, they just do COD. Uh, it's just so fast and quick in comparison. Uh, you know, are, are these really comparable tests? Boy, no, they're not. Those tests use uh, TOC, COD, and total oxygen demand all use strong inorganic oxidants to, uh, to determine the, the concentration. And BOD uses organisms. So none of those tests can really assess the bioavailability of waste like BOD. We're stuck with it. Now we can do is you can do some comparisons and use that as a, as a quick and dirty method of estimating the BOD, but there's really nothing right out there right now that will replace the BOD test. Yeah. Now often some facilities will use COD to, because it's, you know, you can get the test results in an hour. They'll use it to guesstimate what their BOD will be. Uh, and they can, if they run it in parallel with BOD for their facility, and their facility is pretty stable in terms of influent, they can make a pretty good estimate of what the BOD will be based on the COD. But at least in Wisconsin, you would have to have DNR approval in order to make that conversion. And they're gonna make you run a lot of data. In some cases, uh, uh, facilities that have industries discharging into their, their sanitary sewer will use COD as a way of fee-based assessment, user fees. But again, the same situation, uh, they will do side-by-side comparisons to, to determine what the, the comparability is between COD and BOD, and then they'll apply a factor. And generally the COD is higher than the BOD. And what, what are the estimates for domestic wastewater, Rick? Uh, almost double? Yeah. Yeah, that's the general rule of thumb I know as well. The problem with this, Heather, is that all of the tools we have have problems with them. You know, we talk about CBOD. Well, the whole concept of CBOD is that we add this magic inhibitor agent, which is a chemical toxin. And it's designed, believe it or not, to kill only the two bacterial species involved in nitrification. Can you believe that? There's a toxin that only affects those two bugs. The thing that kills me though, is that the more we know about nitrification, we know it's more of a suite, yes. not just two guys. Yeah, and, and any toxin that inhibits any bacteria is going to target not just a specific one, mm-hmm. but any of them. And so Absolutely. that's why we have a problem with CBOD as well. Got it. 
And that's why CBOD is always, always should be lower than BOD. It has to be. Okay. Well, now let me ask this question to you guys, since you're the, the experts and I get this in the field. They're like, my BOD came in at 850. My COD came in at 2000. What does that tell me? Somebody messed up their testing. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be. The CBOD okay. has to be less because you're killing bugs. Oh, not CBOD, COD. Oh. oh, COD. Well, that's entirely possible because you're measuring two different things. You're measuring mm -hmm. with the BOD what's bioavailable mm -hmm. versus chemical COD, what's chemically can be converted. Two very different things. And if you look at the oxidant that's used uh, with COD, it's hexavalent chromium and sulfuric acid. That is pretty potent stuff. Yeah, that's dangerous. So no licking the bottles, that's what you're saying. Uh, I wouldn't uh, even touch the bottles. <laughs> no, hand contact because the, uh, the hexavalent chromium is a carcinogen. It's oh. just dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. Okay, another note to self. I did a lot of C COD testing in school and, uh, and after school, and I uh, had to buy a lot of new clothes because of it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. One drop and then you've got a hole. You don't uh, wear cotton. You don't wear cotton either because cotton disintegrates. That explains my flannel shirts with all the holes in them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and why you have so many patches. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I had uh, in, in early days of my career, one of our COD vials back in the old days when you did a, a reflux uh, exploded and I had to haul somebody underneath the safety shower and strip them down to nothing in the safety shower because of, the, of the, the damage. Now, they had some burns, but it wasn't severe. A person was very, very lucky. Wow. Yeah, I only cleared a, an organic lab once and <laughs> that was enough. It ate through my books. It ate through my shirt. It was impressive. Oh, geez. All right. So we've kind of talked about how everything has some kind of flaw to it. But what are the additional pitfalls when we're measuring and relying everything on BOD? Oh, gee, uh, the test period is too long. Uh, it's very uh, procedural dependent. So you've got to be very consistent. It relies on organisms, a lot of measurement techniques. Rick, jump in here. I'm just trying to think of. Well, let's talk about one. It is actually a very imprecise test. I hate to tell you. Um, the acceptable range for the control, which is glucose glutamic acid or GGA, is plus or minus one standard deviation of the mean. Anybody that does lab work is familiar with the concept of control limits being the mean plus or minus three standard deviations because that represents about 99% of a population. Two standard deviations get you about 90%. One standard deviation gets you only, what, 60%, George? Uh, roughly. So realistically, we're looking at a very imprecise test. If you calculated the standard deviations for our control limits for GGA based on three standard deviations, you could not even run the test and pass. It's that bad. <laughs> that would be called Mack truck limits where you yes. can drive anything through it. Yeah, I think of you, these people that I really believe a lot of operators really want to run the system well, and they really want those numbers to be exact. It's, it's kind of hard knowing that there's some wiggle room in this, <laughs> but their, their permits don't give them that leeway. Right. What we tell people is if you are not expecting GGA or blank failures, you're doing something wrong. 
your your mindset is not right. The statistics are against you. Now, how would I see that in my report? Well, hopefully your report would include quality control, things like the blank and the GGA mm-hmm. result. So the GGA result is going to tell you, did everything fit according to standard methods? Again, keeping in mind, one standard deviation, 198 plus or minus 30.5 milligram per liter. Great. That's what I was going to say. That's good. Wow. 30 milligrams per liter. That's a big difference. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And three times would be, you know, 90 milligrams per liter. Yeah. That's one of the main reasons why I don't like the BOD. But it's the standard. (laughs) It's the standard we have to work with. Keep in mind that glucose glutamic acid is just a compound that's been used by many. It's really... There's really no universally acceptable standard for BOD because you're measuring a variety of compounds. So that was just set in the method because that's something everyone could use. Now we're going to have all we're going to have all these operators taking this podcast to their permit people <laughs> <laughs> and well, telling them how they have not exceeded. <laughs> and, and they should. What, what we tell people all the time is just because you failed something doesn't mean your results aren't good. It means something is up. Or it could be just statistics. Sometimes it's the luck of the draw. Sometimes you run into some nitrification that, you know, adds to the GGA and you fail on the high side. Sometimes in in our state, our biggest problem is the seeding, which is one of the major steps of BOD. The seeding is not adequate. So you're not putting enough of a bug population in there or there isn't enough natural bug population. And so you run low on the GGA. Mm-hmm. Rick, maybe this is a good time to talk about the BOD pyramid and how all that works. Yeah, what George and I have always talked about when, and we've been talking about BOD for over 20 years is keep in mind there's a pyramid around BOD. And it's, it's, you know, as a pyramid, it has three angles there. One of the angles is oxygen. You have to have oxygen. If you don't have oxygen, you can't measure the loss of oxygen during the test. So you have to have oxygen. If you don't have food, something for the bacteria, the microorganisms to eat, they're not going to be happy bugs and they may go belly up. Uh-huh. And then the third is... Uh, drawing a blank here, George. What was the third one? Okay, there's there's a there's oxygen, a food source, and bacteria. You have yes. to have a food source, and then you also need to control the temperature. Yes. So bugs, oxygen, food source, and then all under a temperature controlled environment. You want to have happy bugs. I'm like that. Just sounds so easy. So easy to just do, right? Well, if it's <laughs> done right. It, it is easy. Mm-hmm. And that's what we've trained here in Wisconsin is getting all these steps right. Where to get a good population of bugs? You know, what's the food source? That's defined, at least in the control. The control is GGA, so you have your food source. And then in a sample, the only downside is with a clean effluent, where's the food source? It's a little low which is why we boost it with nutrients. What nutrients are you specifically boosting it with? Oh, there's a whole host of them. They're the major calcium, magnesium, phosphate. Potassium, ammonia. Potassium, yeah, and ammonia. Phosphorus. Yeah, and keep in mind that when George said ammonia, we're actually adding ammonia. So if there is nitrifying organisms in the sample, we'll use that ammonia. And keep in mind that, what is the number, 4.57? Yes. 
So for each milligram of ammonia, nitrogen, it takes 4.57 milligrams of oxygen to convert that from ammonia to nitrate. That is a nitrification process. That's pretty significant. And you add it in your nutrients. So it's going to happen, basically. If you have nitrifying organisms present, yes. Now, it's per milligram per liter ammonia, and the ammonia levels in the nutrient buffer solution is fairly minimal, but it can give you one or two part per million on an effluent and much more on an influent. The good news is that most influents, you don't see nitrifying bacteria. It's in the, because, you know, they need oxygen. And when you have influent coming in that's untreated, uh, tends to be anaerobic, so you don't have the nitrifiers. Not as much. At least that influence a little more true without that ammonia in there. What yes. other what other challenges does the lab have to deal with? Well, Rick, just to jump in here too. Uh, the, the test requirements are that you need to have initial oxygen levels need to be near saturation, and you need to use at least two milligrams per liter of oxygen consumed two milligrams per liter in the test period, and you have to have at least one milligram per liter at the end of the test period. So those are the constraints and your, your blanks, which are basically involved uh, incubating uh, dilution water, water that has ammonia, uh, has the nutrients in it and saturated oxygen, but no sample that can't consume more than two tenths of milligram per liter of, of oxygen during the test period. Those are the constraints. The thing with oxygen, you have just a finite amount of oxygen in water. What you end up having to do is having to make a series, a series of dilutions, serial dilutions, essentially. So you may pick three or four volumes of sample and incubate it, hoping that you at least get at least one or two of them that meets those requirements. Rick, jump in there if you have anything that you want to add here. Well, we talk about the blanks and we talk about oxygen. What we haven't talked about is calibrating a DO meter because that is where it all starts. Absolutely. And calibration is not as easy as it seems. Most people calibrate, they do an in the bottle calibration, which means what you do is you have a BOD bottle with maybe an inch of uh, water at the bottom of it. And then the BOD probe goes into the bottle. It does not touch the water. It's measuring the air. The whole concept there is that the air is, is saturated with water vapor. So 100% humidity. However, the first thing the, the analyst does on that morning is take the probe out of the bottle to kind of dab off any droplets that have formed on the end of the probe. Well, the minute you take that probe out of the bottle, what happens to the humidity? It drops. It drops. So the physical chemistry is no longer valid. Realistically, what you should do is put the probe back in and allow it to equilibrate again, but that can take hours. So that's why calibration has to be done consistently. I take the probe out of the bottle. I dab the, any droplets off of the tip. I put it back in. I wait exactly 30 minutes. No more, no less. I don't go out and take a coffee break in the middle of it. I time it so that I'm doing everything exactly the same way every time. That's yeah. going to get you best data. And that's critical. And the good news is that, that some of the newer solid state uh, DO meters really, really hold calibration. And the software on board those things works very, very well. But there's more than that. Oxygen saturation is influenced by pressure and temperature. 
So if you're not monitoring your lab temperature and keeping it within that finite range allowed by the method, then yes. you can have changes in how much oxygen is allowed for the saturation point. More importantly is pressure swings. If you do your BODs, your, your initial calibration of the meter on a day where we're having a major storm system and a low pressure comes through, things are going to be very different five days later when pressure's normal. Or in Wisconsin, this time of year, we have often have Arctic highs where the pressure can be, oh, what was it, George, uh, uh, an inch of mercury above normal? Oh, yeah. And that can create systems where the saturation point is much higher than normal. And at the end of the five-day period, that extra oxygen is going to come off and be measured as oxygen that was depleted during the test. That will cause blanks to fail. Ah, so are do the lab people have to like get sampling that day or skip the testing that day or, or how do you mitigate that? Well, the only way to mitigate it is to take very detailed notes in your documentation so that when your blank fails and you can clearly point to, well, here I lost a half a part per million simply because I was under an Arctic high on day zero and normal pressures on day five. And they can show that to any engineer that questions them. Or in our case, uh, was the auditors for the lab certification program. And see, that's something that, you know, sometimes the operators won't see, or it'll just have a little asterisk. They should be able to go back to their laboratory and ask that information. There's an asterisk here, what does it mean? Well, and I, I encourage them to do that. And keep in mind that if you have a lab that is constantly flagging every single BOD test they do, it's time to start looking for another lab. Absolutely. That is good to know. We have our battle cry here is also, uh, don't supersaturate me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Because it's just going to cause you problems. So you've got to make sure that your blanks are not supersaturated or your samples. Because again, anything above saturation, if your saturation point for a given day temperature and pressure is 8.5 milligram per liter, and your initial DO measurement is nine or nine or above nine, anything over that 8.5 is going to be measured as BOD. Now we've seen this in some labs that, that try to control costs. So what they do is they they cut the temperature down in the lab. So at night, the temperature may drop down to 15 degrees centigrade. And that water that they use is sitting out on the bench or sitting out exposed to that lower temperature will pick up oxygen. And when they start the testing, the DO is just too high. So the trick is that you, and this is part of the method, is you must have that water 20 degrees plus or minus three degrees. And keep in mind that if you have temperature three degrees lower than 20 or 17 degrees, it'll still contain more oxygen than is allowed at 20 degrees when you put the sample in the incubator. So it's always a good idea to have that water a little bit above 20. We call it making holy water, don't we, George? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, want me to, you want me to tell him how? Sure. No, it's like making holy water. You shake the hell out of it. Oh, oh, that's exactly how it works. Okay. <laughs> yes. And actually, we, we actually had some demonstrations. Uh, Rick Sun used to be a lab manager in, in uh, one of the lo local 
uh, wastewater uh, laboratories in Wisconsin. And we actually went in there. And if you take a sample, let's say, of, uh, particularly in the winter, you take effluent sample, and your effluent samples could have DO levels, you know, when it's uh, in the teens, you know, at 10 milligrams per liter. Well, you can't incubate those. And if you're doing effluent samples, you typically have to have a larger sample volume because the BOD is very low. So what you have to do is warm the temperature up to 20 degrees and then shake them. Uh, and the problem is that we have laboratory people, technicians and analysts that want to do this very precisely. So they'll take it up exactly 20. And you have to take it up just a little bit above 20, just for the physics to allow that oxygen to the excess oxygen to uh, burn off. And so what you do is take the effluent sample, put it in like a half filled bottle, like a, a, a two liter container, half full, warm it up to a little above 20 degrees, you know, 21, maybe even 22. And that's when you shake the heck out of it. And that just the shaking process, and it only takes a couple of minutes and then excess DO will just go out of solution. Well, you know, that's something that, you know, the operator would never know might be happening in the background and might impact their stuff. So I, I appreciate that. Oh, absolutely. This is something lab has to do. And this is something that, that any good lab auditor will be all over. Like a monkey in a cupcake, right, Rick? Like a monkey on a cupcake. The problem with operators getting the results from a contract lab is that unless the contract lab really shares the quality control information, something beyond just results. If they don't, if they put an asterisk on it and say that it's flagged, but they don't provide the detail, the operator really can't assess the quality of the data. And as Rick said before, you know, blanks are going to fail once in a while, but let's say you have a blank that uh, the lab has uh, uh, three tenths of milligram per liter depletion of the five day test period. It's just barely, barely out. Does that mean that the data for the beauty that week but that particular test is no good? Absolutely not. It's good good data. It just means that the blank was a little bit out. But a tenth of milligram per liter out is not much. But if the blank failed by a milligram per liter, then I'd suspect uh, you have put those the, the data that they're reported to the laboratory or to the facility. That data is probably not very good. So you've got to have this information. Or if there are patterns, you, you can't create matter you can't create oxygen. So if your blanks are always positive, they're gaining oxygen, uh-huh. that's a problem. That says that somebody's not calibrating properly. Absolutely, that just screams of calibration problems. Oh, that's, that's excellent to know. I mean, I, I did a couple problems in college where I created mass and I'm like, I know it's wrong. <laughs> that's not quite possible, but you know, that that's good for the operator to know. You know if this is what they're looking at and their data because they've exceeded their permit and they're now going to be fined. You know, they need to know what the possibilities could be. They should feel okay to call their lab and ask questions about, you know what, you flagged this, it's out. Why is it out? Is it out high? Is it out low? How much is it out? And can you explain why that happened? Yeah. Because that could that could be the difference between a lot of money. Yes. And that, now, that comes back to the BOD test as a whole. You have to wait five days to get results. And facilities that send their samples out, what do they typically wait? Uh, two, three weeks to get results back? Two to three weeks. Yeah. So if you're exceeded your dis- discharge permit for two to three weeks, you're out of luck. 
that's why we always encourage uh, leaps labs in Wisconsin. I did I audited for seven years, six years for the Wisconsin DNR too, and after my retirement from the state lab of hygiene. And we always encourage people to do testing on site because then you have results in five days. Nice. Rather than waiting the two or three weeks. Exactly. But keep in mind too, one of the, the I don't know if this is the right plan to bring this up, Rick, but it's suspended solids. Ah. Keep, in, keep, keep in mind that suspended solids and BOD are very similar. So uh, in Wisconsin, we talk about discharge permits, you know, 2020, 20 BOD, 20 TSS, uh, uh-huh. 10 BOD, 10 CSS. In domestic wastewater, suspended solids and BOD typically agree fairly well. So as a tool, if the lab gets results back and they see that their BOD is, is five milligrams per liter, but their suspended solids is 10 or 15, something's wrong there. And vice versa, if you have a BOD that's uh, 20 milligrams, but or 15 milligrams, but are just suspended solids only five, that's a problem. And that could be pointing to a lot of things. Uh, Rick, jump in here. Uh, just, it could be nice. Yeah, I'd, I'd love could to know be. that because I actually just had someone send me their their data that where that was happening. So I'd love to know that. Could be nitrification. In some cases, depending on what the ratio is, it could be toxicity. But again, a lot of people shout out toxicity, which is a whole different problem. And it's very, very rare. So we usually tell people, don't be so worried about toxicity. It's nitrification normally that you would be worried about. So in other words, if you see a a suspended solids of five and a BOD of 15, that could be nitrification. If you see a suspended solids of 15 or 10 and a BOD of five, that's where you start thinking about something that's suppressing. Excellent. And one tool that you could do to test that would be then to run the BOD with the TSS and a CBOD. And if it's nitrification, that CBOD should be much lower than the BOD and much closer to the TSS. That Absol- would be an indication that you have nitrification going on. Absolutely. And the, but the thing is, when you do those tests, you don't want to run a single test. You want to run more data. You can't base your assessment that is TS or that is nitrification just on one set of results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we also ask people to run ammonia because we want to see, is there actually ammonia in there? Because yeah. if there isn't ammonia in there, you can't have nitrification. Absolutely. And if you do have it in there, does it mirror? So if the ammonia goes up, does the BOD jump up? Oh, excellent. And last but not least, if you really want to prove it, measure nitrate. Are you forming nitrate? And what Rick means too is it basically at the end of the test period, you run, if you, let's say you set up a, a, a batch of BOD samples and you may set three dilutions. You may have a, a sample that has uh, three different volumes and you incubate those three volumes. Take, set those up in duplicate. You run your, your uh, carbonaceous BOD in one set, actually triplets. Another set you run the regular BOD without the, the nitrification inhibitor and then take another set that you mix up and you test that for ammonia and nitrate at the beginning of the test period. At the end of the test period, you take the samples that were not treated with the nitrification inhibitor mm-hmm. and you measure the DO and then you take those and test those for nitrate as well and look to see if the nitrate was formed during the, during the five-day test period and that'll give you exactly how much nitrification took place. Okay, now let me 
ask another question uh, what if you suspect it's algae how how does that change things or does it algae in the sample bottle yes well if there's algae in the sample bottle and it's incubated in the dark it'll respirate so it's going to use oxygen yeah, it's going to use oxygen mm-hmm. not going to produce it Okay, so that it might be lower then. Well, it would use oxygen, so the BOD would go high because it's using oxygen for the respiration. False positive. False positive. Yeah. That's a better word for it. Okay. No, that that's good because I, I have had customers that, you know, they, they do an audit of, say, like a lagoon system. And the first three lagoons have just really driven down the BOD. And then they come to the end and all of a sudden it's super high. And I'm like, well, let's talk about that algae in that last lagoon. What is that <laughs> you contributing? The thing is, when you're measuring lagoons, too, if you have duckweed, that's an issue. Yeah. So you want to collect sample below the surface or on a discharge so you don't get that massive amount of duckweed. Excellent. Of course, you want to get a representative sample. There's only so much you can do. Well, and what other things can operators do when they're grabbing a sample? If grab sample versus a 24-hour composite, I, I don't know what most, most facilities use, but in Wisconsin, most of them have... Uh, uh, compositors, so they'll take samples over a 24-hour period. And the placement of the tube for the sampler is critical. You don't want it sitting at the bottom, so you pick up crud. You don't want it sitting at the uh -huh. top, so you pick up uh, algae or uh, duckweed, floating floating algae. You want it center stream. Center stream. Exactly. Excellent. Well, I've, I've seen all sorts of sampling methodologies, and I'm like, I think it's better to go a little deeper than that surface where it's just really easy to just grab stuff. Oh, absolutely. If you're taking a pond sample, you're doing a grab sample, and you're not taking it at the discharge, you know, the old camera bottles from back in the, the old days, uh, collecting below the surface would be ideal. All right. Um, well, I wanted to include a section because we've really covered a lot of good stuff, and I'm excited for, I have a couple customers, I'm like, Let's listen to this. This will help. But how do you talk to the state regulators and how do you talk to the engineers? Because the whole point of this podcast is to be that bridge because there's not always a apple to apple conversation with regulators and engineers. So what could they do? Be very respectful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> don't be afraid to ask questions. You should know your state regulations. And if you feel like you're being told something that may not be accurate. I always tell people that be very polite and just say, listen, could you help me out with that? Could you point out, because my boss is gonna ask me, so could you point out for me where in the regulations it specifically says this? And, and Rick, what Rick is trying to say is that's a polite, a polite way of saying is, where's your authority? But in a polite way. In a polite very way, polite. Yes. Respectfully, politely, but don't be afraid to ask questions and push for answers. <laughs> I, I have to throw this in there, Rick. Rick was going to start a consulting firm. I'm always going to be your name at your consulting firm, Rick. Where's your authority.com? <laughs> Well, our editor would love that because he has a bumper sticker that says question authority. I, I'm legendary for, I always say, where's your authority? One other thing, too, you want to point out, too, is that engineers really know how to build plants. They know how the plants operate. But don't have your engineers tell you how to run a lab. And I want to bring this up because uh, I, during my, my stint as an auditor with the Wisconsin Lab Certification Program, I went in a facility. It's a new facility, absolutely beautiful lab wonderful treatment facility. It was a big uh, oxidation disk system and it was really, really worked, uh, operated properly. It's a great system. In the laboratory, they had a $20,000 water purification system for the, their lab water, which they didn't need. 
they could buy five gallons of water a week, distilled water, and that'd be enough. But they didn't put a fume hood in, which is just unsafe. And oh. what they specified for doing the phosphorus work was a handheld colorimeter, not even a spectrometer. And they said, well, this is what the engineers say we had to use. I said, that's crazy because their data was so, so right on the edge, barely able to detect adequately, barely meeting their control limits when they did uh, reference samples. I made them go out and buy a new instrument. The, the choice was, now against my authority, uh, what I said is you have two options. You could either send all your phosphorus testing out to another, another uh, to a commercial lab, or you can buy a spectrometer and sell that water purification system. But that's, that's it. Uh, the, the engineers have their place and the lab people have their place. Mm -hmm. Especially in design, I, the lab people need to be there in the conversation just as much as the operators. If you're going to have a lab on site, you need to have the a lab operator there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've, I've heard conversations. They're like, oh, they put that stupid plug in the wrong place and I would have put it over here or whatever. I'm like, did you tell them? Well, no, they'll never listen. I'm like, you got to tell them. <laughs> you got to tell them. Respectfully. And respectfully. Politely. Yes. You know, one of the things you can do, too, is, and, and I've had the opportunity of this, is uh, uh, where the, the lab people in the, at the plant, the operators, shared a copy of their, their design plans. And I went through a couple of plans and looked at them, and a lot of things were really good, and a lot of things were just terrible. And the nice thing is that they were able to make corrections before they built the plant. So one of the things I do is if you have, uh, if you're going to build a facility, a new facility, you remodel your, your facility, and you can add a lab, talk to your lab certification representatives, your auditors or whoever is with, uh, with their, your state regulators and check with the engineers, work with them. Hey, help me out. What would you do if you were going to build this lab? Awesome. Yeah, bring them into the conversation early. Oh, absolutely. Real life story is uh, when my son was working in the lab, the rules were that the uh, plant manager wanted him to write the, the daily ammonia results every day up on the whiteboard so <laughs> he could check on them. And my son was trying to become more efficient and save money. So what he wanted to do is do the test weekly and just preserve them and then do them all together in one day. And the manager said, no, 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 I need those results daily. So my son being a little bit like me, um, <laughs> he started leaving out the ammonia results on the whiteboard. And he went two or three weeks and nobody said anything. So he went about doing the weekly test. Oh. And he proved that they didn't really need the results daily. They wanted them, but it's one of those want versus need. Mm -hmm. So Rick, tell me, if you had ammonia levels fluctuate from day to day, what changes in the plant could you make that would change those? You could do many things, and one of them is changing the uh, oxygenation levels in various parts. So why don't you just monitor oxygen? Isn't well, that more efficient? To me, it is, but that's one of those conversations that you have to have with somebody that you both respect each other, and you say, you know what? You might get more information out of measuring oxygen here. Absolutely. That you can affect. I'll still run your ammonias once a week and we'll have them, but your oxygen is going to tell you more quicker. And the same with the total phosphorus. If you have labs that are permitted for total phosphorus, but they send the results out, the samples out 
it takes a while to get those data back. You might be better off, or you would be better off if, even if you are not doing it for certification purposes, just to monitor your effluent for orthophosphorus. Something could be done right on site with these little test kits. A Hawk makes a nice one. Uh, I'm sure there's mm -hmm. other companies that make them as well. Monitor that daily. And if you have to make adjustments on your chemical feed, you can do that on the spot. Instead of waiting for two to three weeks, get your phosphorus results back and then decide, gee, I'm exceeding my phosphorus limit. I should be checking, uh, adjusting my chemical feed. No, that's a really good point and a really good way of controlling in the system. Well, absolutely. And I, I got to jump in here too with, with Rick's son. What he was doing or his plant was doing is they were doing uh, orthophosphorus tests twice a day. And then they're, if they had to make adjustments, they made adjustments. And then the total phosphorus doing once a week. Again, by doing the ammonia and phosphorus once a week, it saves hours of lab time. Mm -hmm. and, and considering that most facilities now are being pushed and pushed and pushed to be more efficient, these are things you can do to save real money and allow the operators to do other things that are important for, let's say, uh, facility maintenance. Yeah, well, I mean, because sometimes and a lot of times it's just one or two people on the whole system that run it seven days a week and they don't have time to be in the lab four hours every week or, or every day kind of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. I, I will say, though, I've always been impressed when the operators are going to visit them and they cut off in the middle of something. They're like, I got to go get my sample now. Give me 20 minutes. I'll be back. Whatever. I'm like, I can respect that because that means you're important. You're invested in it. I like seeing that. Absolutely. And I'd love to go and walk with you and see where, how you're sampling. <laughs> Absolutely. That's how you build that relationship. Understand what each person's job requires. Well, and in a, a small town, you know, one person is wearing all the hats and including is the dog catcher. So you got to be flexible, I think. Absolutely. When I, when I was auditing, one of the uh, guys that I was working with had to call the audit off at one point and he said, you know what, I'm sorry, I got to go lime the baseball field for the tournament tonight. Oh. I'm like, what? Yeah, that was his job. Or getting a call at uh, five in the morning say, hey, I can't, I got to call off the audit because I had to go plow snow. Yeah. That happens. Well, especially up there in Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I have to say my favorite combo, though, has been wastewater operator and lawyer for the city. Oh, that, that's a new one. Yeah. That, that one. I was like, wow, you deal with crap all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but crap. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> That's good. Uh, we'd probably use another term here, but that's good. There you go. Yeah, we're keeping it G-rated. So I, I wanted to ask, were there any other like lessons learned or anecdotes or something that you guys wanted to share? Yes. It's BOD, get a grip. That's, that's George and I's battle cry. Oh, absolutely. Okay. It's <laughs> get a grip. It's it's not chemistry. When we talk about ammonia and phosphorus, those follow chemistry rules. Mm -hmm. But BOD is biological. It's all up to the bugs. And you can't tell the bugs what they're going to do. They're going to do what they want to do. It's not like solids, which is a pure physical. You just dry it and put it on a balance. Mm -hmm. So people have to get a grip when you talk about these things. And keep in mind, too, if you have a, a BOD one week that is, uh, uh, let's say your discharge permit is 10 for BOD, and one week your BOD is two, the next week or the next time it's tested is four. Oh, my gosh, 
my beauty is doubled. Yeah. It didn't double, it's the same number. It's just that variable. Absolutely. Before you start losing any any sleep over it, remember, get a grip, it's a BOD. That's the same number. It's when it goes from like two to all of a sudden 12, you're like, ah, oh, that might yes. be a little more. Mm, well, let's, let's talk about that one. But so you get 12 milligrams, what's the TSS? Yeah. And then keep in mind too, if your BOD is done on on the uh, 24 hour composite, then you wanna make sure TSS is also done on that 24 hour composite. So you compare apples to apples. You don't want to take a grab sample, do a TSS, and then do a BOD and a composite. You're, you're not comparing the same numbers. Yes. Yes. All right. Any other lessons other than getting a grip? We got to get those t-shirts made, George. <laughs> oh, I agree. That's great. We can make a million. <laughs> <laughs> sure you could. <laughs> it could be next, a movement. <laughs> next, next time we go to the wastewater conference. There you in, go. In October. There you go. I like that. In, I'd buy one. I'd buy one. That'd be fun. <laughs> there you go. My grandson's a, a, a computer whiz. Uh, he's uh, 16 years old, but he's he's a programmer. He does everything. Design, prints. Uh, I'll have him design a, a t-shirt for us. How was that, Rick? Perfect. Y'all need to put your faces on the back, though. Yeah, Rick and George. Oh, that would scare people. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just... That's cruel and unusual punishment. Punishment. Oh, okay. Okay. We could just put the name on there. Yeah, Rick and George. That's bad enough. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll see what that looks like then in October. All right. Well, with that, I, I I love everything that we've talked about because I really see that it could be a help to those that you know are in the field. I did want to segue into our, our tidbit before we finished up. And uh, this is my salute to my mom who always sends the the best and weirdest information in wastewater. And she also sends me her water quality uh, things to review for her as well. But uh, I wanted to talk about walking on water. I, as a kid, always asked why. So like, you know, when the bugs are walking on water, but I can't, why? I don't know if you guys had those kind of questions. I can't say that I did, but it's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. You're fine. I was too busy fishing for smallmouth bass. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, then you would have seen like the water striders then. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Lots of water striders. And, and it tastes a lot like chicken. I'll take your word for that. <laughs> <laughs> swimming. I had, I had a chance to in, in actually uh, swallow one one day when I was swimming in the river. It was not pleasant. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Barry, that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing, George. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Um, what I found was interesting about the water striders as I looked into it was that they actually have a hydrophobic surface on their feet. And I instantly thought that was cheating. I thought they were just walking on the water, but they're actually preventing the water from touching them to pull them down. And they can walk on the water as long as they the pull of gravity uh, on the animal's weight doesn't exceed the pushing up from the water surface tension, which is probably why most of us humans can't walk on water. I, I don't know if you've done that one too, George, though. No, I haven't. I haven't tried walking on water. Uh, uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, uh, that goes against my religious beliefs. <laughs> his, his skills are limited to making holy water. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. But I have to say it's brilliant. So Heather, tell us, how can they determine how these things walk on water and why? Well, you know what? It's been actually a long time in the making. There was a university in China actually evaluating how that surface tension and 
all those measurements and things are actually very difficult, but they decided to actually look at the dimples, the shadow of the dimples that the legs make on the surface of the water. And I'm like, so you're measuring the shadows of the feet. That blew me away. From that, they could do back calculations out of it. And we're going to include the, the video and the article if you really want to nerd on it in the show notes. But I would absolutely watch the video on how they measure the shadow of the water strider's feet on the water. That's amazing. It blows me away. I would have never thought of that. So, I mean, it's out of the box thinking and I love it. Some people have too much time on their hands. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think of that when I see that there's an atomic sized enterprise, you know, Starship Enterprise that was made atomically. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, get those, get those scientists out of the lab. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pull them out, pull them back. But uh, no, I, th I thought that was kind of fun. It's clever, clever science. No doubt about it. Oh, it is. Yeah. Well, I really want to tell you guys, I appreciate your time and coming and talking with me through this. I've learned a lot. I'm going to take it and help my customers as best I can. We're going to include George and Rick's picks info in the show notes as well. Their recipe for holy water, though, I think you just heard it on the podcast. So... <laughs> You won't need that. <laughs> no, we actually have a video of it though, but it's, I'm not sure if it's successful anymore. Ah, well, we might have to look at that too. Yeah, if not, I can try to find it and send it to you, Heather. Or you could always make one for us. There you go. Yep, you bet. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you too very much. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll be talking with you on another subject on our next podcast. I hope so. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad spectrum line of biostimulant nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. Find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.